0: Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. Today we're reading short and deep. Ozymandias by Horace Smith. This is a famous poem under a different author. And uh, a famous poem on the same topic by a different author. That would be... Percy Shelley, Um, but uh, like you, I, and probably everybody in the audience, I was not super aware that Ozymandias was actually a paired poem. That is, there is another poem with that title um, that is far less famous, far less quoted, um, but I think very interesting, and especially interesting in reflection to that famous Percy Shelley poem. So uh, I I I believe I'm capturing what you are thinking. Am I right? Is this not a poem you're familiar with prior to my mentioning it?
1: The Horace Smith version, right. not at all.
0: Yeah, but the other one, Ozymandias, uh, is
1: known since my childhood.
0: Yeah, and me too. I think I think it's taught in school. It's in Breaking Bad. You know, there's a whole. Uh, <laughs> Uh, it, it has a pop culture resonance in the way that a lot of poems and sonnets never do. This one really stands the test of time as it were. Uh, whereas the Horace Smith almost immediately forgotten and only recently rediscovered, um, by I think anybody really, um, I found it via the Wikipedia entry for, for Ozymandias and, uh, it's actually a joint entry, uh, Horace Smith's Ozymandias and Percy Shelley's. And it it shows how similar they were and that they were published in the same uh, newspaper uh, three weeks apart. And uh, I think it's really, really interesting. And um, I wouldn't mind if you read it to us.
1: <laughs> well, I'd be happy to. Um, this is the Smith version. Mm-hmm. In Egypt's sandy silences stands a gigantic leg which far off throws the only shadow that the desert knows. I am the great Ozymandias, saith the stone, the king of kings this city shows the wonders of my hand. The city is gone, naught but the leg remaining to disclose the size of this forgotten Babylon. We wonder and some hunter may express wonder like ours when through the wilderness where London stood holding the wolf in chase, he meets some fragment huge and stops to guess what powerful but unrecorded race once dwelt in that annihilated place.
0: That's, um, that's the part that gets me is the second stanza. Um, But (laughs) I think we should probably uh, remind everybody of the original, well, not the original, the slightly earlier published and much more famous poem uh, and see it in reflection um, because it's on the same subject. Uh, Would you mind if I read that one? By all means. Here we go. Percy Shelley's Ozymandias. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, My name is Ozymandias, king of kings. Look on my works, ye mighty, and despair. Nothing beside remains. Round the decay of of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sands stretch far away. Tackling the same subject, the same, same statue fragments, the same character, so many parallels... Um, but I think the resonance is different and the focus is different. Um, and what I love about Horace Smith's is it's science fictional. <laughs> Whereas um, Percy Shelley's, I think, is not science fiction at all. It, it is very uh, much about history and about hubris. <laughs> Horace Smith's is about those things too, but it, it also projects in a way that uh, it projects in both directions. So I'm 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 much uh, I'm much finding myself much more enamored by Smiths than I I do by you know what is very famous and, and a good poem by Shelley. I just I I think it's amazing that uh, this unknown guy who is a friend of Smiths, uh, uh, sorry, friend of a very famous poet did a better poem and and it's less famous.
1: I think it's worth <clears throat> reminding people that as as you pointed out to me, um Shelley and Smith sort of had an ongoing competition um mm-hmm. writing a, competing shell uh, sonnets many times.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Um I, uh, <laughs> I I don't want to disagree but um but i think i must i i like the smith poem i do and i like it in part for the symmetry of past and future that it shows uh, that you talk about the uh, the babylon of that lost city from which we have the fragment of the sh- statue and the future in which london has become itself a lost babylon mm-hmm and some hunter um, out in the wilderness. I mean, the harsh wilderness. Uh, that There's not just... Uh, I mean, Shelley says, I met a traveler from an antique land, whereas Smith is contemplating a hunter uh, pursuing a wolf. Mm-hmm. So the antique land is somehow past civilization. It's been tamed, whereas London has... Rewilded,
2: mm-hmm.
1: uh, and it's an it's an interesting image. I, and I do like it, um, but I have to say, I think the Shelley is better on a number of grounds, um, which I could elucidate if mm-hmm. you want. Maybe we should leave Smith. Oh no! All right. Um, here's some differences. Smith is quite explicit about what he wants us to think. Um, he, he says, you know, there was a Babylon, now we're going to see a London. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very explicit uh, mirroring going on. And Babylon carries with it some particular associations from the Bible. It is a great city, but one that is mired in immorality and that God will justly bring down. Uh, the horror of Babylon, um, we see that referred to not only in the Bible, but picked up by Chaucer. And so to see London as a variety of Babylon is to make a comment about the city. I, I think that Smith is talking about English civilization.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I think that Shelley is talking about something much more intimate. I agree. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, and then all the rest of the poem is what the traveler said. Mm -hmm. So what Shelley gives us is a nested narrative, whereas Smith seems to have a poetic voice that belongs to someone who's actually seen this himself. And then he says, we wonder. You know, that is he's arrogated to himself the the royal we um, that what some future hunter may see uh, in London having already long gone away. So there is a a distancing here. There's a, a front frame, and we never get back to get to an end frame. Mm-hmm. Shelley is expecting his readers to decide what to think. Now, I, I like that better than being told what to think. Also, while Smith uh, gives us a gigantic leg, Mm -hmm. Shelley gives us two trunkless legs. And we see the face of which has fallen into the sand um, of, of, of Ozymandias. Now, the traveler says that he sees this wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command Mm -hmm. tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survive, stamped on these lifeless things. So there's an artist inside Shelley's sonnet. That is, there is a sculptor. Mm -hmm. the, The sculptor is long dead, he can still convey the depth of his understanding by the product of his hand. That visage, albeit fallen, still conveys the insight of the sculptor. It just no longer validates the narcissism uh, of It the- repudiates it, yeah. Exactly. So I ask myself, why, why does Shelley bother to make this a nested narrative at all? Why say I met a traveler from an antique land? And it seems to me that the the antique land has two possible meanings. One is. There was a guy who came from a place which once upon a time existed, you know, like the classic period, Mm -hmm. you know, so he went to some other civilization now fallen, like visiting Ephesus, you know, go there today and it's clearly an antique land that you're visiting. Or it could be that the traveler from an antique land is someone who has come to him from that civilization, who understands it. Indeed, he does, because he's correctly able to read the work of the sculptor. So who is it that manages actually to do a work that persists? It's the sculptor within the quotation marks, but in the first line and a half, there's a poet. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: So it seems to me that Shelley is suggesting that the, the worldly works of humanity these are ephemeral, no matter how vast they may seem to be.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But the works of art, these can persist. Now, that contrast between works of art and works of brass reality, there's a kind of doubleness there. Mm-hmm. And I see that doubleness in the relationship between the front frame and the rest of the, the, the poem. I see that doubleness in the two vast and trunkless legs of stone, mm-hmm. whereas Smith mm-hmm. gives us only one leg. And that leg, that one leg, throws the only shadow that the desert knows. Mm-hmm. I ask myself, why, why does Smith have a leg throwing a shadow? Well, I know what happens when you have one thing standing up and it casts a shadow. You get a sundial.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So Smith is giving us images of the passage of time. Yep. It's, a, it's a good poem. I really do believe that. And he interestingly mirrors the future with the past. Mm-hmm. And to some extent, the, the biblical with the reference to Babylon in particular with the fairy tale. You know, the sort of other kind of timeless uh, notion of narrative that is inherent in our civilization with the wolf. Mm -hmm. Um, So there's a kind of doubleness there. But all of that doubleness takes place in showing us the weakness of civilization, Mm -hmm. that time passes and wipes out everything. Whereas the way doubleness is handled in Shelley, it gives us hope. Yeah, I, I agree of, with everything you're saying. Okay, well, no matter what else goes wrong, great art can persist. And it's interesting to me that it is, that Smith is like 13 years older than Shelley when they're writing these sonnets mm-hmm. Well, for their whole lives. <laughs> but Smith is the older poet, but I think that Shelley really understands what it means to... Uh, to try to transcend aging. And for, my, for me, this poem is therefore greater. And as you say, it's taught in schools. That line, um, look upon my works, ye mighty, and despair. Mm-hmm. That's a quote that you know half the school kids in America, I think, come to understand.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And the reason they do is not simply because the works of hands are diminished but because the works of the mind can persist
0: it's it's true and i i love the idea of thinking of the the single versus the double um we're reading these out of straight out of the examiner um published uh on january 11th 1818 is the original ozymandias under a title that says, Original Poetry, on page 24. And then on page 78 of the February 1st, 1818, uh, Examiner, it says, Original Poetry, and then there's a note that says, To the editors of the Examiner, Sir, the subject which suggested the beautiful sonnet in a late number signed Iglarastes produced also the enclosed from another pen, which if you deem were it worthy insertion, it is at your service and hs and then we get the poem um ozymandias under the same title now uh i have a few biographical and interesting notes here um so i believe when i sent you this you noted uh the glorastes pseudonym um yep. I, I found out why he's called that uh, did you manage to look that up or Oh, oh, I didn't. It's really and interesting, did, yes. um, and it sort of fits in with the uh, sort of the more personal uh, note that happens. So, HS is uh, an, uh, is Horace Smith's initials. Um, Glorasti's um, it did later get published under Percy Shelley's own name in a in a volume. Um, is Percy Shelley's pet name for himself uh, <laughs> when mm. he when he talks to his wife. Who is Mary Shelley? She was uh, known uh, as a pet name. Her pet name was Dormouse, and his pet name was Glorastes. And the reason that's funny is because it's a kind of a cobbled together name made from the suffix uh, Greek suffix Erastes, meaning lover of, and the Latin uh, for Dormouse, which is Glorade. So. He's, he's saying lover of Dormouse. Apparently, uh, their son also got a, a name, um, Willmouse. So it was sort of a loving family name and an inside joke uh, for his nine-month um, nine, nine month marriage at this point. Um,
1: so, Although, at this point, this is, this is 1818, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. This is nine months after they're married. This yep. is after that son has died.
0: No, uh, the, the it's the next son.
1: Um, well, you, you said Wilmouse, isn't this William?
0: Um, it, it was. Uh, didn't they have uh, two kids? I think they did.
1: Well, the one that died is the first one. His name was William. I thought you might I'd be right. Have to look that
0: up. You might be right. They, there is a picture of him, um, but he's not dead. So <laughs> in the picture. <laughs> uh, so I'm not, sh- I'm not. I'm not. I'm not a hundred percent sure on their family. But um, what I can tell you is that uh, the later Horace publication, uh, and perhaps why it's less recognized, because this is the only time it's called Ozymandias. In his uh, later poetry collection, it has a different title, a much worse title, I think. Um, it's quite long, ago, it goes, um, On a stupendous leg of granite, discovered standing by itself in the deserts of Egypt, with the inscription inserted below. Um, I think that that really undercuts the <laughs> the story a bit um by just being too obvious but um I do also want to note that um there is a Edgar Rice Burroughs novel that takes the second stanza of um Ozymandias by Horace Smith as its premise which is um a hunter from uh, from another land that is a uh future american um travels to london and england um as part of a war thing and is is crashed there essentially um in a submarine slash uh, uh airship <laughs> and travels through uh england that has been real wilded there he comes uh, across uh you know all the antique destruction, uh, this antique and destroyed city, um, with its primitive peoples and um, a, a parliament. Uh, you know the um, parliament buildings in London, full of lions. It's. Uh, I, I think there is even a wolf in there somewhere. Um, I don't know that Burroughs uh, took the <laughs> took this poem as his premise, but. It is, a, it is a, an image that's very striking. And I, I just want to, re, re, in rereading it, uh, which I'd like to do, uh, the uh, Horace Smith, Ozymandias, I want to point to the fact that in uh, Percy's, Percy Shelley's, it's one big stanza. There's no page break or line break. There is in uh, Horace Smith's, and I, I don't understand exactly why people do it, but I can feel it. Like, I don't understand the the logic, but I can feel sonnets are different when they have that break. So um, I just think it's interesting that that uh, it's two legs in Gilra- Gilrasti's poem, and it's one leg in Horace Smith's poem, but it's two stanzas of Horace Smith's poem, and it's one in... Uh, Shelley's. So um, I'm going to read it again and I hope uh, you'll note all the words I emphasize because I think they're really interesting. The repetition here is, is super interesting. In Egypt's sandy silence all alone stands a leg which far off throws the only shadow that the desert knows. I am great on Ozymandias, saith the, so- the stone, the king of kings, This mighty city shows the wonders of my hand. The city's gone, not but the leg remained to disclose the site of this forgotten Babylon. We wonder, and some hunter may express wonder like ours, when through the wilderness where London stood, holding the wolf in chase, he meets some fragment, huge, and stops to guess what powerful but unrecorded race once dwelt in that annihilated place. So in rereading it for me a second or third time, I noted that all the times uh, wonder comes up and, and the different meanings of wonder. So in the first stanza, three lines from the bottom of that, it says, the wonders of my hand. It's like, this is like, look at all the great stuff I did. And then in the second stanza, we wonder the opposite kind of wondering, the kind of wondering like, huh, how did that happen? And, none, and, and some hunter may express wonder like ours. <laughs> um, so there's a parallel between what the, uh, the hunter is wondering and what the, uh, what the reader is wondering and also against the wonder of the creation of that city Went through the wilderness where London stood, holding the wolf in chase. So, London is the one that is past tense stood, whereas in the first stanza, it's actually where that leg stands. The tense is sort of inverted in a certain sense. It's the the city that Ozymandias or Ramses Second created. By the way, Ozymandias, I. Figured this out. Ozymandias is the Greek for uh, Ramses. Um, Actually, Ramses the Second. Yes, Ramses the Second. That's
1: right. Which is important. It
0: is. It is. It, the, all the uh, the names are breakdownable into understanding, like who who he's the son of and that sort of thing. In no, any no,
1: no, no. no, I mean it's important because Ramses the ha- Second occupies the a place sort of like Elizabeth the First in the British monarch. I mean, he's not just another one of the pharaohs. He is considered the greatest pharaoh of the New Kingdom. He
0: ruled for a huge amount of time, and that was three thousand three hundred years ago. He was born, so it it is not nothing that his his works stand at all three thousand years later. But uh, basically, what I'm pointing to, (laughs) um, and why I think the Smith is is at least today (laughs) much more interesting to me than than the uh, very, very solid Percy Shelley, is that Shelley is personal. It's about our mistakes and our foolish sort of hubris that we think we can make something that can stand the test of time. Whereas The Smith is about, sure, man got hubris, but it's about deep time. It's about the relentless depth of time in both directions not just, you know, for our building and uh, what's so amazing is that if Ozymandias' statue or Ramses II's statue actually has that exact inscription or something like that inscription he is himself projecting into the future saying look, in years uh, in future people are going to look on my city and my works and they're going to say I can't equal that um, and he's right in a certain sense, right? That they can't equal that because very few cities uh, have any sort of you know standing stones still left uh, three thousand years later. But on the other hand, uh, the projection isn't far enough because he is maybe thinking after his own death rather than thousands of years after his own death, and it's it is I think. So much about deep time and far less personal, and just to me, that's much more interesting. <laughs> and I it. think
1: yeah, I I certainly can understand that and and credit and respect it. Um, for me, the the deep time that you're talking about um, shows in Smith uh, simply um, a misperception. of of one's, that is, Ozymandias' own power. Mm -hmm. But Shelley shows us that there are, in fact, those who are that powerful. Because not only does Shelley come up with a, to my mind, spectacularly good sonnet, Mm -hmm. but he also postulates that the sonnet is motivated, as was Smith's, by the work of a prior artist, Mm -hmm. And while the work of Ozymandias did not persist, the work of the artist who contemplated Ozymandias did. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And that suggests that this poem is not simply personal. It's about the nature of art and why it's worth our attending to it, Uh, despite the fact that a given edition of either of these poems may have a line break here or there. I think it's clear, if you just, for instance, look at the rhyme scheme,
2: mm-hmm. yeah.
1: that Shelley has made a perfect sonnet, whereas Smith has made an imperfect one. Now, one could argue that the imperfection is meant to echo the the fact of Babylon, no, or whatever is the Egyptian equivalent, Thebes, I guess— um, um, not persisting, but I don't think it feels that way. It begins in Egypt's sandy silences. And if you take a look at the rhyme scheme, just scanning down the, the 14 lines, mm-hmm. word silences is never picked up again. So here's how the rhyme words go in the Smith. Silences, throws, nose, stone, shows, gone, that is gone, disclose, Babylon. Express, wilderness, chase, guess, race, place. There is a, to my mind at least, or to my ear, a hodgepodge of mixing imperfect rhyme and perfect rhyme, that is slant rhyme and perfect rhyme. um, And it all begins with a line that doesn't rhyme at all
0: oh actually uh, Where, how, uh, I think you're just you've got a bad copy because it says uh it, on my copy it says in egypt's sandy silence all alone stands a uh, giant uh, leg which far off throws the only shadow that the uh, desert knows, so alone runs right, with stone
1: you're right the the all alone is there, yes good
0: yeah, and it's uh, it's silence too and rather than silences. I, I like the alliteration in there, Sandy Silence. Um, I would say that you know but, everything you're me, saying. Is, allow me to
1: make a comparison yep, with, with with Shelley. Mm-hmm. Uh, listen to how his works, whether or not you, it's printed with a with a break. It's so clearly an octet and a sestet. I met a traveler from an antique land, stone, sand, frown. Command, read things fed appear kings despair decay bear away the 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 words just interweave themselves and come out working perfectly and i think that that's uh that is in fact doing in his own poem what he's claiming poetry can do Mm -hmm. which is to make something that has a kind of immutability a perfect a perfection that will persist
0: percy's a better much better poet and in fact you can you can read the whole poem just as the last word of each line listen land (laughs) stone sand frown command red things fed appear kings despair decay bear away. It has the actual same story in just each of those last lines, where it, it, it the other one is not as good. Alone, throws, no stone, shows, gone, disclose, Babylon, express, wilderness, chase, ga- guess, race, place. So you can't actually read the same story out of it. Percy, it, he was some kind of genius, right? Like, this is... This is known (laughs) and not just for this poem. (laughs) He is some kind of genius that uh, people, the the people around him, um, could see it and feel it. It, I I think he's a better poet than Byron. I like Byron's stuff too, but Percy's just amazing, right? He's he's sort of a wonderkind. Um, What I think is really interesting is that there's this dude who's like nobody's ever heard of that um, actually had a sort of, uh, he had a friendly relationship with, and there's a great line, um, I'm going to see if I can find it here, um, about Horace by Shelley. Um, One of the things that they had in common, other than, you know, they like poetry, is um, they... uh, Uh, Horace Smith was, like, really good at making money. He was a stockbroker. And Shelley was terrible at finances. So, basically, Horace Smith ran and took care of Shelley's finances for him. Um, So, about Smith, Shelley is quoted as saying, Is it not odd that the only truly generous person I have ever known... uh, Sorry, I ever knew who had money enough to be generous with should be a stockbroker? He writes poetry and pastoral dramas, and yet knows how to make money, and does make it, and is still generous.
1: It's wonderful. Shelley actually is giving credit where he believes, and I think we do too, that it's due.
0: It is due. Um, it is due. And, yeah, uh, there's no question, you know, they're not going to start <laughs> showing, uh, you know, making kids read uh, Horace Smith in in American schools and Canadian schools anytime soon. Ozymandias will likely forever stand as as a work by Shelley. But I don't think it's uh, undue to say maybe, you know, this Horace guy had something going too. And, and, and seeing their friendly competition and them being friends from 200 years ago, um, just over 200 years ago, this happened. And then thinking back to 3,300 years, you know, and the, and the fact that Napoleon was in competition before he was locked up at the time of this story's writing in a island prison, um, you know, a guy who tried to transform Europe, was in rival for the British Empire to get this statue and move it to the British Museum and It didn't actually arrive for another two years, but the writing in anticipation of its arrival. All of this is like it it adds to the richness and the depth in a a way that I think, you know, if you and I just wrote some friendly sonnets together today, wouldn't have that gravitas, um, even though we are good friends.
1: Indeed, one of the signs of art, of great art, according to John Dewey, is what he called fundedness the ability to go back to it and get more from it and more from it and more from it. Mm. And these two poems juxtaposed indicate just how funded each of them is. I think we understand Smith as even better than we would have had we not put it alongside the Shelley, Mm. which shows that by changing the frame a little bit and casting yet another light, there's always more to say.
0: Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for reading short and deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward sffaudio.